Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. And today we're going to conclude our short series about the beginning of the American Revolution in South Carolina by looking closely at the theft of government-owned weapons and gunpowder in Charleston in April of 1775. This crime, actually three separate but coordinated burglaries, represents the first major step in our transition from peaceful protest against British oppression to treasonous rebellion. Despite its significance, this important story isn't well documented, and so historians have had a difficult time incorporating it into the narrative of the Revolution of South Carolina. So let's take a look at the evidence and see if we can iron out some of the wrinkles in this remarkable story. On the afternoon of Thursday, April 20th, 1775, the members of the General Committee of the South Carolina Provincial Congress convened in Charleston. After discussing the latest news received from England and the intelligence contained in the private mail stolen from the post office on the preceding night, the President of the Provincial Congress, Colonel Charles Pinckney, appointed William Henry Drayton to head a secret committee to execute a series of preemptive covert actions. Their assignment was to take possession of government-owned weapons and gunpowder to prevent local British authorities from taking military action against the rebellious colonists. Such action was illegal and treasonous, of course, but the long-brewing American tensions with Britain had reached a breaking point, inspiring South Carolina's political leaders to take action. Under cover of darkness, on the evening of Friday, April 21st, three teams of operatives set out on their respective missions. Now, before we delve into the details of those clandestine missions of April 1775, Let's rewind for a moment and take a look at each of their three targets. Starting in the 1670s, the provincial government of South Carolina began accumulating a collection of weapons for the use of the public in times of emergency. Besides cannon, iron shot, and carriages, the government also purchased small arms, that is, muskets, bayonets, pistols, cartridge boxes, lead shot, flints, matches, and cutlasses. In the early days of the 18th century, these weapons were kept at various bastions around the fortified town. As the population increased, however, so too did the number of government-owned weapons and the need for a permanent storage facility. South Carolina's royal government appointed an ordnance storekeeper and began planning a centralized armory. In 1743, after several years of construction, all of the colony's unmounted cannon, carriages, small arms, and gunnery tools were moved into a new brick armory near the southwest corner of Meeting and Broad Streets. Today, this building is under the south wall of the Federal Post Office building at that famous corner. By the early 1750s, South Carolina's growing collection of arms had already outgrown the 1743 armory, so the government began looking for overflow storage. A stone's throw away, 
at the northwest corner of Meeting and Broad Streets. Workers laid the cornerstone of the colony's first state house in June of 1753. Three years later, in 1756, the building was sufficiently complete to house South Carolina's Legislative Assembly, although the finishing details continued for a further nine years. On the ground floor of the new State House stood the colony's only courtroom, as well as apartments for a jury, the provincial secretary, and the building's housekeeper. The upper floor was devoted to the legislative chambers, one for the Commons House of Assembly and the other for the Upper House and His Majesty's Council. That's the same body of men with slightly different functions. Above these two finished floors stood a large attic space, secured behind a locked door that was designated to house the government's collection of small arms. In the spring of 1757, the provincial legislature paid gunsmith John Milner to move the bulk of South Carolina's government-owned small arms, including hundreds of muskets, cutlasses, and related accoutrements, into the new armory in the attic of the statehouse. The older armory was redesignated an arsenal and continued to house the colony's collection of cannon and artillery accessories. The management and oversight of South Carolina's collection of government-owned small arms was the responsibility of the ordnance storekeeper, a part-time position appointed by the governor. The storekeeper was responsible for making regular reports to the General Assembly about the number and condition of all of the arms, but he contracted with local gunsmiths and other tradesmen to repair and clean the weapons. In October 1773, Lieutenant Governor William Bull, our chief executive at that time, appointed Irish native John Pogue to the office of storekeeper of His Majesty's Ordnance and Stores in this province. Two years later, when the Revolutionary War began in Charleston, John Pogue was still the man with the keys to the armory inside the statehouse. Speaking of which, Mr. Pogue wasn't the only one with keys to the building. Throughout the 1770s, Mrs. Mary Pratt served as housekeeper of the State House and lived in a small ground-floor apartment within that grand building. Now, we don't know much about Mrs. Pratt's life, but we can be sure that she heard and saw nearly everything that went on within the walls of the State House. The New Magazines of 1770 In the spring of 1770, the South Carolina legislature engaged in a hot debate about the storage of gunpowder within the urban confines of Charleston. The colony's earliest powder magazines had been built on the outskirts of the town, but over the years the expanding residential population had moved beyond the old magazines. Residents had been complaining for years now about the inherent danger of living next door to large stockpiles of gunpowder, but the government was slow to act. Finally, in April 1770, the South Carolina legislature ratified an act for building two new powder magazines near Charleston, but well outside the town, and to close the older urban magazines. Shortly thereafter, 
the government purchased from Miss Mary Elliott a lot on the neck of the Charleston Peninsula at the head of Shipyard Creek, and another lot from Captain Clement Lempriere at Hobcaw Point, near the mouth of Molasses Creek. The two new magazines, completed by the end of 1770, fell under the jurisdiction of Captain James Reed, an aging mariner who held the title of Powder Receiver of South Carolina from 1760 until his death in 1779. For the better management of the new rural magazines, however, the provincial government appointed two neighboring gentlemen to superintend the facilities under the titles of Deputy Powder Receivers. Captain Robert Cochran was the brother-in-law of Miss Elliot and owned a shipyard adjacent to the new magazine on the neck, while Clement Lempriere's son-in-law, Charles Prince, superintended the magazine adjacent to his residence on Molasses Creek. Now, there's nothing left of these 1770 magazines today, although the Hopcaw magazine is memorialized by a historical marker on the west side of Muirhead Road in Mount Pleasant, near the head or east end of Molasses Creek. The Covert Operations of April 21, 1775 Once the secret committee appointed on April 20th had made their plans, Preparations began for a series of three covert raids on the following evening. The entire operation was supposed to be a secret, but apparently not everyone followed the script. According to the post-war memoirs of William Moultrie, for example, a few gentlemen approached the king's ordnance storekeeper, John Pogue, and demanded the keys to the armory in the attic of the statehouse. Mr. John Pogue, a man of principle in the king's employ, replied that he could not give them up, but neither could he hinder them from breaking open the doors. This hint was enough, remembered William Moultrie. There was no time for hesitation. Around 11 p.m. on the evening of Friday, April 21st, a silent party of rebellious Americans, dressed in their normal civilian clothes, convened at the corner of Broad and Meeting Streets. Their objective was to remove as many of the government-owned weapons as possible from the attic of the State House at the northwest corner of that intersection. On the opposite side of Broad Street stood the town's watch house, or police station, but the rebel thieves encountered no resistance. Did they break open the door of the armory? Well, according to an official publication issued just a few days later, the door showed no signs of being forced open. Perhaps a key had been obtained after all. At any rate, over a period of several hours, they quietly removed at least 800 muskets with bayonets, 200 cutlasses, all of the leather cartridge boxes, and a quantity of match and gun flints. Imagine a bucket brigade of rebels stretching from the attic of the state house, down the stairs, out the north door of the building, and into the courtyard. Waiting there was probably a queue of carts or wagons ready to shuttle the weapons off to multiple secret hiding places so the entire cache would not be found if the authorities suddenly interrupted the scene. Who were the men who participated in this raid on the statehouse armory? 
Well, in his 1821 memoirs, John Drayton provides a list of respectable gentlemen who attended at the State House on that evening, among whom were Colonel Charles Pinckney, President of the Provincial Congress, Colonel Henry Lawrence, Chairman of the General Committee, Thomas Lynch, one of the delegates to the Continental Congress, Benjamin Eugee, William Bull, and William Henry Drayton, the last two nephews of the Lieutenant Governor William Bull. To this list of gentlemen, Joseph Johnson, in 1851, added the names of several mechanics, or tradesmen, including Daniel Cannon, William Johnson, Anthony Toomer, Edward Wayman, and Daniel Stevens. Meanwhile, down by the Cooper River, operatives were making preparations to steal the government supply of gunpowder from the nearby magazines. Under the cover of darkness, two groups, perhaps numbering six to ten men each, embarked in two large rowboats from some point on the Charleston waterfront, probably from the town's northernmost wharf owned by Christopher Gadsden. The route from Gadsden's Wharf up the Cooper River to the magazine at the head of Shipyard Creek on the Neck was approximately four and a half miles. The route from Gadsden's Wharf to the magazine at Hobcaw up the Wando River near the mouth of Molasses Creek was almost exactly three miles. To economize their rowing efforts, the two crews probably coordinated their respective journeys with the changing tides. The incoming flood tide would have facilitated the trip from the wharf upriver, while a few hours later, the ebbing tide would have carried the powder-heavy barges back downstream to Gadsden's Wharf with a minimum of effort. Years after the conclusion of the American Revolution, a Charleston blacksmith named William Johnson told his son, Joseph, that he and Edward Wayman, a member of the secret committee, had taken part in the expedition to break into the magazine next to Robert Cochran's shipyard. When they arrived at the target, however, they found the magazine empty. It appeared that Captain Cochran had divined their mission and preemptively removed the powder and hidden it nearby. The elder Johnson blamed this failure on his friend Edward Wayman, whom he remembered as being particularly fond of good cheer and addicted to good living. According to Joseph Johnson's 1851 publication of Traditions and Reminiscences of the American Revolution, Cochrane was sympathetic to the American cause and was soon active in the patriot resistance to British oppression. As the deputy powder receiver in charge of the Neck magazine, however, he would be financially responsible for the disappearance of its contents. Shortly thereafter, Johnson said, Captain Cochran sold the hidden powder from the Neck magazine to the Provincial Congress and used the money to pay off his obligations for the missing powder. Whether or not Johnson's anecdote about the magazine incident with Robert Cochran is true, it appears that the rebels achieved their goal of getting the gunpowder away from government hands in April of 1775. Joseph Johnson stated that his father and friends rode back to Charleston empty-handed and embarrassed, but we may never know if that's the way it really happened. On the other hand, 
John Drayton, who published his own father's Memoirs of the American Revolution in 1821, reported the arrival of only one cargo of stolen powder at Gadsden's Wharf on the night of April 21st, or the early hours of April 22nd. Drayton simply stated that Christopher Gadsden attended at his wharf to receive the powder when it was landed there from the Hobcaw magazine. From this statement, we can deduce that the mission to raid the contents of the Hobcaw powder magazine went according to plan, without interference from Charles Prince, the deputy powder receiver in charge of that facility. If the theft of the powder under his watch embarrassed Mr. Prince or caused him financial stress, it was apparently of very little concern to South Carolina's early rebels. Charles Prince remained steadfastly loyal to the British cause, to the point that he was forced to flee from Charleston in the summer of 1777. The Discovery of the Crimes On the morning of Saturday, April 22nd, someone informed Lieutenant Governor William Bull, either at his home on Meeting Street or at his office, about the nocturnal burglaries. Bull immediately summoned his privy council, clerk, and secretary, and convened at the State House. First, he interrogated John Pogue, the provincial ordnance storekeeper, who informed the lieutenant governor, quote, that about 800 stand of arms, 200 cutlasses, and all the cartridge boxes fit for service, with the several bundles of match and some flints, were taken out of the public armory in the State House last night by persons unknown, and that there was no appearance that the doors of the armory had been forced by violence. End quote. Next came Captain Robert Cochran, deputy powder receiver, who stated, quote, that on the same night, the public powder magazine built on his land, actually next door to his land, about four miles from this town, was broke open, and all the powder therein, being about 500 pounds weight, was carried off by persons unknown, end quote. The lieutenant governor called in the housekeeper, Mrs. Mary Pratt, who lived in an apartment on the ground floor of the state house, and asked her if she had seen or heard anything unusual during the preceding night. Although she saw the arms taken away and the persons who took them, said John Drayton, she would not give any information tending to a discovery, even after William Bull threatened Mrs. Pratt with the loss of her place, which was mostly her support. Was Mary Pratt a silent supporter of American liberties? We'll never know for certain. But she did lose her job as keeper of the state house when the British Army captured Charleston in 1780, and she reapplied for the position at the conclusion of the war in January of 1783. If the lieutenant governor was displeased with Mary Pratt's feigned ignorance, he was probably furious with the commander of the town watch, who was called in to testify next. Every night at sundown, Captain John Stevenson and his paramilitary company of nocturnal watchmen mounted guard across the street in front of the watch house at the southwest corner of Broad and Meeting Street. In addition, these ambulatory watchmen made rounds through all the streets at regular intervals during the night. Had any of the watchmen seen anything unusual during the preceding night? 
perhaps a few suspicious characters carrying hundreds and hundreds of noisy small arms away from the state house to some unknown destinations? No, sir. The watchmen saw nothing. John Drayton, drawing from the notes of his father, William Henry Drayton, stated, Although the watch commander saw several persons about the state house and knew them, he was equally silent. Appalled by the serious nature of these daring offenses and the pretended ignorance of several eyewitnesses, Lieutenant Governor Bull issued an official proclamation on the afternoon of Saturday, April 22nd, offering a reward of 100 pounds sterling to any person that shall give information so that he or they may be brought to condign, that is, formal or fitting punishment, hereby strictly commanding all of His Majesty's justices of the peace, constables, and other civil officers to use their best endeavors to make discovery thereof. God save the King. Printed copies of the Lieutenant Governor's proclamation were posted around the town, and it appeared in all of the local newspapers for the next several weeks. The reward was never claimed. No one ever came forward to offer any information about the thefts to the King's representatives in Charleston. Note that William Bull's proclamation, issued on Saturday, April 22nd, does not mention the magazine at Hobcaw Point. A few days later, however, on Tuesday, April 25th, Lieutenant Governor Bull sent a message to the Commons House of Assembly, stating that in addition to the above-mentioned thefts from the State House and Captain Cochrane's magazine on the neck, Mr. Charles Prince had informed him of the theft of 1,025 pounds of gunpowder from the Hobcaw magazine on the evening of April 21st. It would appear, therefore, that Mr. Prince didn't deliver this news to William Bull until after he had issued the proclamation on the 22nd. This detail was of little consequence to the investigation, however, for the vast majority of the gentlemen forming South Carolina's Commons House of Assembly in the spring of 1775 were also members of the colony's nascent shadow government, the Provincial Congress, and they already knew more about the recent burglaries than Lieutenant Governor Bull would ever learn. Upon so very extraordinary and alarming an occasion, continued the Lieutenant Governor's message to the Commons House, it becomes my indispensable duty to acquaint you therewith, without the loss of time, and earnestly to recommend this important matter to your investigation and most serious consideration. How did the rebellious gentlemen of the Commons House react to this urgent plea? According to the memoirs of John Drayton, the Assembly laughed at this act of government. However, to carry on the farce, the matter was referred to the committee who had been appointed to examine the public arms. Two days later, on April 27th, that committee returned to the Commons House and reported, with sarcastic self-satisfaction, quote, that with all the inquiry your committee have made, they are not able to obtain any certain intelligence relative to the removal of the public arms and gunpowder, as mentioned in His Honor's message. But we think there is reason to suppose that some of the inhabitants of this colony may have been induced to take so extraordinary and uncommon a step, 
in consequence of the late alarming accounts from Great Britain. End quote. The members of the Commons House concurred with the findings of the committee report and forwarded a copy thereof to Lieutenant Governor Bull. I'd like to close this short series about the first sparks of the American Revolution in South Carolina by drawing your attention to the last sentence of that committee report of April 27, 1775. In fact, it was that sentence that inspired me to launch this brief series of essays. My goal over the past few episodes was to clarify the events surrounding the theft of the Royal Mail on April 19, 1775 and the significance of the intelligence gained during that small but pivotal operation. On the same day that citizens in Massachusetts witnessed the shot heard round the world at the skirmishes at Lexington and Concord, a small group of rebellious South Carolinians discovered the same intelligence in their stolen mail that their brothers in Massachusetts learned the hard way that the British government intended to use the military to crush American resistance. This intelligence inspired the first steps of the revolution in South Carolina, the preemptive raids on the government-owned arms and gunpowder on April 21, 1775. Six days after that treasonous operation, the investigative report of a committee of the Commons House of Assembly summarized the spark that ignited the war in South Carolina with a touch of sarcastic panache. Quote, There is reason to suppose that some of the inhabitants of this colony may have been induced to take so extraordinary and uncommon a step in consequence of the late alarming accounts from Great Britain. End quote. In short, the information acquired by raiding the post office on April 19th proved to be the last straw for angry Charlestonians. The time had come to take up arms and to fight for liberty. The events of April 1775 were just the small opening steps in what became a sprawling, violent struggle for independence, of course. But I'm going to stop here and take a break from the American Revolution. In the coming weeks, we'll move on to other topics and other eras of history. I go wherever the time machine takes me. Kevin Crothers is the executive producer of this program for WYLA at the Charleston County Public Library. CCPL is your home for local history. If you'd like to learn more about our resources, discover upcoming programs, or just explore the Charleston Time Machine, check out the library's website at ccpl.org. Thanks for joining me aboard the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.